Ready? This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear clearly what your scripture is saying us this morning as we begin to get to know the book of 1 John. pray that it would begin to bubble and uh, percolate in our hearts, that it would begin to soften us for things like fellowship and love and the long-distance run that is the Christian life. I pray that you would use the book of 1 John in our time from now till June to conform this, this assembly, this church, to be more like your son to run toward each other in love, to uh, be able to identify people who are trying to deceive us, and to finish the race that you've called us to. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So we're starting a new sermon series today in the book of 1 John. So if you want to turn in your Bible now to 1 John, we'll be kind of here and there in that book this morning. But first, I thought you would like to know that I actually don't do a lot of cooking. A lot of you have been asking me lately, if I do cooking. I also don't do a lot of baking, in case you were wondering. I don't do much cooking. I don't do much baking. I used to. I don't anymore. But I do still know how to follow a recipe. So I can still bake, and I can still cook. And I know that relieves us all. So when I follow a recipe, one of the things I still bake is my famous orange scones. I can go from the top to the bottom, I add the ingredients just in the order that they they want me to. I pour a little orange sauce over the top at the end. I bake them, and out come really good orange scones. But if you're not following the way scones work, if you're not following the recipe in the order it's given, the scones don't come out right, and they don't taste very good. Because you have to follow the author of the recipe, right, as you bake or cook something. And if you do a lot of baking or cooking, unlike me, you know that. You have to follow the recipe in the order that it gives it to get the result at the end, or it doesn't work. And if you've ever tried rearranging a recipe, have you tried that? It's like, ah, I just, I'll just do sort of whatever. I'll just kind of throw this stuff together. Well, it doesn't really work willy-nilly because the chemistry, at least for scones, right, the chemistry and the way that that dome is made has to have the ingredients in a certain order. The chemistry doesn't function well. And if, so if you start the recipe at the end, I don't know if you've ever tried this, start the recipe at the end of a recipe for scones and try to cut that pile of flour into six nice wedges, right, and put that on a tray and bake that and see how well that goes for you. Or take the orange sauce at the end, just pour it on an empty baking tray, put that in the oven, right, and enjoy all the smoke that you're going to get in about five minutes. You can't start at the end of the recipe. You can't start at the, in the middle. You have to go from the beginning to the end in proper sequence. And you also can't use postmodern reader response interpretation on a recipe. You know what postmodern reader response is, right? It's the text, the text is here, and I can make it say anything I want. Right? I don't care what the text thinks it means. I get to decide what the text says. So I know that it says recipe for orange scones, but I've decided I believe these are hamburger buns. And that's what I'm going to call them. 
because I've decided this is a recipe for hamburger buns. And please don't have me over for supper the night you try to make hamburger buns out of orange scones. That just doesn't even sound good. Right? That doesn't work with the recipe. You can't imagine that it's something else and just have that become true any more than you can take any text and sort of imagine that it can say whatever I want. That doesn't work. You can't, you're not going to have orange scones, and your hamburger buns will be terrible. And biblical books actually work exactly the same way. By analogy, the, the author and the divine author, the human and the divine author of every biblical book have organized them in, perp- on order, in order on purpose to come out a certain way at the end and to take you on a certain path so that you come out a certain way at the end. And you don't get to just decide however you want to go through the book, nor do you get to decide whatever you think the book might mean because there's a recipe and the author's put it in order and you need to follow it to get to the end that the author has for you. I was a history major in college, and I remember I took an early Christian history class at the University of Nebraska, right? What could possibly go wrong with that? So one day in class, Dr. Turner, who was one of the driest professors I ever had, like there were people openly snoring in that class every time I went, just, and they, no one cared. It was, it was awful. But he decided... One day he was going to fix the Gospel of John as he was teaching early Christian history to us. And he took the entire Gospel apart as though it was a bunch of Lego construction, right? And so he had all the Legos out on the table. Just took the whole thing apart and then put the entire Gospel of John together a completely different way. The way that it should have been written, in his opinion. And we had to take notes on this. Okay, now chapter 3, first two verses. Now chapter 8, 12 verses. And we had to write this whole thing down as he disassembled and reassembled the Gospel of John so that it was written correctly. And when he was done, I'm not sure what he had, but what he didn't have was Scripture. This was no longer a book, as John says at the end, written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. So whatever he had, by not following the recipe of the book of John, he created hamburger buns out of an orange scone recipe and whatever it was we were now looking at in class was not the bible it was something of his own creation even though it had some of the same words but they weren't arranged the same way he made a mess out of it you can't do that to the biblical text and i assume that we get that right that we don't get to come to the biblical text and say here's what i want to hear today tell that to me or that we can just come to the biblical text and imagine or just rearrange it in any way that we want. So when we approach 1 John, we need to take the text as it stands and as it's given to us. But I want to introduce another thought in addition to the follow the recipe of the author in the book. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about how the books of the Bible are put together? And that maybe there's a recipe there. We wouldn't say it's inspired at all. The, books of, the order of the books of the Bible aren't inspired in the way that the text is. But people put this text together, this Bible together, in order on purpose, right? They compose these books next to each other. So do you ever ask questions when you come to the Bible? Like, why is Acts in between? Why is Acts after John and not after Luke, right? Because if you read them, it's a two-part volume. Luke and Acts go together. But somebody decided to put John in the middle of them. Well, why is that? And what does that teach us about how to read? Right? There's probably a reason John cuts Luke and Acts in half. Or if you're in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew order, which is a little different than the English, right? But it's not inspired, and that's fine. The book of Isaiah follows the book of Kings. Well, why is that? Right? Do we ever ask, so the book of Kings, 
we're reading through, we're waiting for the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled and the coming Messiah, and every king fails, every king dies, and the people end in exile. And it looks like by the end of the book of Kings, we're at the same place we are at the end of the book, book three in the book of Psalms. Darkness, despair, and everything's failed. The people are in exile. And then you get to Isaiah, and who does he see right at the beginning of the book who's still coming, right? Maybe there's a reason you, Isaiah is right after Kings that helps us understand what the books are about. So for us this morning then, let's think a little bit about the recipe of the order of Scripture. First John, is it just sort of accidentally in this spot in the Bible? Did somebody just kind of, well, you know, we have three extra books. We've got to stick them somewhere. Let's put them here. Like, why, aren't, why isn't it Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 John, Galatians, 2 John, Ephesians, 3 John? You know what I mean? They don't have to be here. So why is that? Is that a coincidence or is, that, is there a reason for that? So I want us to think about that a little bit as we're getting to know 1 John today. That might be a new thought for us. There's also a few other introductory things we want to do as we get to meet First John today. We're going to do kind of the same thing you would do as you get to know a person. Right? There might be some people here you don't know very well. You're going to get to have a chance to talk to them at a community meal soon. And you'll start with small talk. And small talk can be a good thing if it's used well. Right? Do this at the community meal. Small talk can either be a bridge or a barrier. Right? Small talk is a bridge when it's an entryway into someone's life to get to know them better so that you can keep getting to know them better. Or small talk can be a barrier in saying... I'm going to tell you one you know, thing about my week that doesn't matter, and then this conversation's done. Right? Small talk can be a way to not talk about anything of consequence, and all we're going to talk about is news, weather, and sports, and that's it. So let small talk be a bridge. We want small talk with First John this morning to be a bridge, not a barrier, a bridge into the book. So we're going to ask it some of the things you would normally ask people when you meet them. What do you do during the week, First John? You know, what's your normal job? What are you up to? You work outside the home, what do you do there? If you work inside the home, what do you do there? But we usually phrase it differently when we're talking to a biblical book because it's not actually working anywhere. It's done its job and it's in canon. So we want to ask it things like, what kind of book are you? What genre are you? How are you written? That'll help us get to know First John. And when you make small talk with people, sometimes you ask them things if you want to go to the next level. What do you like for art? Like, what do you like to read? What kind of music do you listen to, right? What movies do you watch? Gives you an idea of what kind of stirs a person's heart and passions. And it's good to get to know people. When you ask questions about literature and art, well, you can ask the same kind of question about a biblical book. You could ask a biblical book what song it is that it likes to sing, What song does it like to sing? You see, every biblical book has a melody line in it, a melodic line that's the theme of the book that goes, it's always, so whenever you come to the book, you always, whatever it's talking about at the moment, you can always hear it humming in the background, the melodic line or the theme. So we could ask first John, what's your main theme? What's your melodic line? What song are you always singing every time we come to you? What are your main themes? What are your big ideas? That's a way to get to know the recipe of 1 John. So we're not going to have a normal sermon this week. You've probably already figured that out because I started talking about baking scones. 
It's not a normal sermon where we work our way from beginning to end of a discrete passage in Scripture looking for the authored meaning intent, right? What is the author saying, the authored text? What does it mean? What's the message? And what does it want me to do? What's the intention? That's what we usually do. Today, we're just going to start some small talk with the book of 1 John to find out the recipe that we need to be following in order on purpose to get where the author of this book wants us to by the end. So that's what we're up to this morning, and I think it's going to be really enjoyable. And we get to please God by listening to his word and get to know him better as we look at how his book operates. So let me flip over to 1 John as well. And then once we've gotten to know 1 John today, we are going to go through it just text by text, passage by passage from now until about the middle of June. So we're going to take it nice and slow and have a good soak in this little epistle towards the end of the Bible. Ready? So if you're taking notes, there are going to be three headings in your bulletin outline. This is the first heading. Our first question is going to be, is this a federal offense? That's the first heading for your notes. Is this a federal offense? And we're going to begin with the basics of the first kind of meet a new person, meet a new book. Like not what do you do during the week, but in this case, what kind of book are you? What kind of book are you? What kind of book is First John? We would normally call it a... A letter or an epistle. It's a document that communicates things from the mind of one person or group to another person or group with a specific purpose in mind. It's an epistle. It's a letter. But we didn't write the letter. We're not the author of it. And we're not named in the letter as the recipients of it, specifically. Right? And neither are Second John and Third John. They're the same way. Unless the elect lady is here this morning somewhere. Second John, the elect, anyone? Gaius? Gaius? No? So no one who these letters were actually named in the letter are, they, are in, the, in the building either. So the question is, is this a federal offense? Because you know the U.S. postmaster does not like you taking other people's mail and opening it and reading it. That's actually a federal crime. So do we need to just sort of quietly just, oh, we better, we better stop reading First John. It's not our mail. So what do we do? How do we read New Testament epistles? How do we read other people's mail to understand the authored meaning intent? So I'm going to propose an analogy this morning. This is something new. We haven't covered this ground before, I don't think, together. An analogy about how New Testament epistles work and how it's actually good, a good idea to read other people's mail if it's from Paul or John or Peter or Jude or James. You're supposed to be reading their mail. And I'm going to argue by analogy to help us understand how New Testament epistles generally function as letters by looking at another part of the Bible. Like when you don't understand the New Testament, what's one of the best things you can do to try to figure out what the New Testament is doing? We have another body of literature and scripture we can look at, which is the Old Testament, right? That's why I like the New Testament so much. It reminds me so much of the Old Testament, which is so cool. That's what's so good about the New Testament. So when the New Testament's fuzzy, you're having trouble with it, always go back and look earlier. So let's do that. Let's look at the beginning of the Old Testament to look by analogy what it is New Testament epistles do. The beginning of the New Testament, we just happened, or Old Testament, we just happened to have finished studying, which is really handy. The book of Genesis, right? Genesis sets up the main storyline of the Pentateuch. That's the first five-part book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So if you want to know what the Pentateuch, we call it in English, sometimes if you want to use the Hebrew word, it's Torah. 
What, what is the Torah about? It's what Genesis says it's about. I think the basic story or line, melody of the Torah is this. Because of what happened in the garden, you need to come in faith and be saved by grace in the coming seed, son, savior. That's the story of Torah. Come by faith to be saved by grace. That's the message, that's the story that the Pentateuch starts in the Bible. Now look at the beginning of the New Testament, right? We're going to parallel these. You with me? What's at the beginning of the New Testament? Four books, the same story told four times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The Gospels do exactly the same thing that Torah or the Pentateuch do. They are, they're the base story. Everything else in the New Testament moves on from the Gospels. And no particular surprise, they're actually telling the same story the Torah is telling. Come by faith, be saved by grace in the coming, or who has now come, seed, son, savior, whose name is Jesus. And that's not a surprise to us. We've studied the beginning of three of the four Gospels together And we've seen that every one of them starts by saying, we're not the beginning of the story. This whole story we're about to tell all depends on the one that you've already read in the Old Testament anyway. So we have the Pentateuch and the Gospels doing the same thing in each of their different halves of Scripture. They're starting or setting the groundwork for the story. Next, now, in the the Old Testament, this would be easier if we had a slide, so try to keep with me and imagine. Next, there's a chunk called the Prophets. And there are eight of those. And they divide in half. The first four prophets are narrative, and they tell the story of what happens to God's people in the promised land. He saves them out of the land of death to the land of life. What happens next? Well, that's what the first four Hebrew prophets tell us. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are the story of God's people as they come into the land to live there. And how well does that go? Right? We just mentioned. Not real well. Right? It's a steady, right? and occasionally somebody pulls the stick up on the plane, and then it just kind of keeps until it flies into the mountain, and we're in exile, and we're all gone. Then the next four prophets switch genres. So we were in story. Now we're switching to poetry, mostly, for the last four prophets. And those last four prophets don't keep the story going, They look back on what's happened, and they interpret the Torah, and they interpret the narratives, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, to help us understand how things could have gone, right? How things should have gone, and what's going to happen now that God's people are away from him in exile. So those next four books are written to take the message of the previous text and apply them to a people who are now living in exile so that those people will still have the word of God to hear and live and will be ready, be shaped and formed by it, be ready when God comes to get them in exile and bring them back home. That's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. Those are those four books. Got that? So start the story in the Torah continuing story in the first prophets and reflection back on what went wrong or what went well, what should have happened and how can we get these people in exile ready to come home by a change in genre from narrative to poetry in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Obviously that's a high level view, but that's what's going on and the way those books are put together in the recipe of scripture. Now come back to the New Testament. We have the Gospels, they're like Torah, they start the story. What comes next? Acts. 
which is a narrative of the continuing story of the people of God after they've been saved from life to death, what happens next? And this time the story is not the plane flying into the mountain, is it? We're on the other side of the cross. Something is significantly different in the people now. They're actually new creation. And this story goes the other direction. As the word of God multiplies, the people of God multiply, and the word of God multiplies, and the people of God multiply, and we make disciples. And by the end of the book of Acts, the gospel is reaching the, end of the, the ends of the earth. It's a narrative that's telling the continuing story of the people of God, but it's going in completely the other direction. And then what happens next in the New Testament? We switch genres to what? Not poetry, letters. And we get 21 books that reflect back on the earlier story in the Gospels and Acts to teach God's people how to live in exile so that they're ready when their Savior comes to bring them home. Do you see the parallel? These things are doing a lot of the same kind of thing in the Bible, these 21 letters that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 do in the Old Testament. They're reflecting back with the view of now because of what happened before, the earlier story. Now here's how you live in exile until Jesus comes and brings you home. That's what I think is going on in the 21 letters of the New Testament, of which 1 John is one. So that helps us figure out how to read 1 John. If this theory is correct, 1 John is a book that is written to the people of God who are currently in exile, that would be us, as one of the books to help us be ready and fit to both to finish the race and to be ready for Christ to come and get us and bring us home. And I should, we should also note that none of the letters of the New Testament are sufficient in and of themselves. Each letter gives us a sliver of life in exile, but it takes all of them together to be a well-rounded communication of here, people of God, here's a group of letters that together will help you live your life in exile. So each one of them contributes something, but none of them are sufficient in and of themselves. So you can't just read one of the letters and say, that's enough. I've figured this out, don't need anything else, right? We need them all. That's why we're going through all of Scripture gradually together. Right now we're in 1 John. So that's the, is this a federal offense, right? The answer is no. This is just how the Bible is designed to work, to help us as his people in exile be ready for him to come and get us and to finish the race that he's called us to start in the Gospels and Acts. Second question. As we get to know John, let's ask him who his friends are. First John, who are the people in your neighborhood? That would be the name of the, uh, the second part of this, if you're writing it down in your bulletin. Who, and I won't sing it. Who are the people in your neighborhood? But now you're singing it, right? It's Mr. Rogers, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that's Mr. Rogers. Who are the people in your neighborhood? Who are the people First John likes to hang out with? So to discover that, we look before it and after it, and we discover that First John is part of, a little part, part of a little part of Scripture called the general epistles, right? And those are almost very nearly, not quite, but almost the last books in the Bible. Only Revelation follows them. And by the way, Revelation, which we didn't get to and we won't talk about more, there's a third part of the Hebrew Bible that spends all of its time waiting for the coming of the king, Psalms starts that part. What is, what is Revelation about again? 
And do those maybe parallel them each other? That's something else to think about as you're understanding the book of Revelation and what it's for. Maybe it echoes the work of Psalms and the books that follow in the Old Testament. But anyway, I once taught a class, a summer elective class on the general epistles and how they all fit together and what they're doing. So I'm going to give you a seven-minute quick snapshot of that summer-long class on the general epistles. Here's how the, that's where First John is. Here's how the general epistles, I think, work. And we'll see, and don't time me on seven minutes. I just said that because it's a good number. But it will, not, it will not be very long. So the general epistles, I believe, begin with James, not Hebrews, and end with Jude. So they are bookended by the two books that Jesus' brothers wrote. Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude, wrote those two books. They bookend or bring together the seven books that are the general epistles, which very handily leaves us 14 books, which though both of those are divisible by seven. Uh, 14 books written by Paul, Paul's books bounded by the main theological treatises of Romans and Hebrews. So I think at the end of the book of Hebrews, there's a handoff point to the next chunk of books. The end of the book of Hebrews has, introduces a couple of themes and some theology that then the whole of the general epistles pick up on the end of Hebrews and then take off and advance. That's why we read this. This, I think, is the main theme introduced at the end of the book of Hebrews that all of the general epistles build on. It's what we read at the beginning of the sermon. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Right? We're looking back, saying, look at all that's come before us. Now us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and now it looks forward. Let us run endurance with the race that's set before us. We need to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so you don't grow weary or lose heart. I think that is a great summary of the theme of all seven general epistles. As we're getting closer, right? Because we're getting closer to the end of the book. We're getting closer to the end of the story. We're getting closer to the end of the Bible and the grand consummation that is the book of Revelation at the end of the biblical epic. Maybe someday we'll go through that together. I love that book. The biblical text becomes increasingly concerned. You can even watch it in Paul's letters as they're building. Increasingly concerned with perseverance. Keep going. Don't quit. The race is long. Keep looking at Jesus. He went to the cross. You can run this race. Don't grow weary and lose heart. So the book of James picks up on that and introduces, I think, three main concepts for that are for the rest, all the rest of the general epistles build on. So James is the first book, and James is saying, okay, for Hebrews 12, when it says, throw off the sin that so he's throw off those things that will entangle you. What are those? And James lays them out on the tables. Like, here's all of the stuff that church, Christian, that might keep you from finishing this race. And I think you can organize them into three categories, which start with S. Three things that will keep you from finishing the race of faith are sin, suffering, and serpents. And I credit the serpents with the guy who was in that class I taught. I said false teachers, which is what I mean by serpents. People are coming and spreading a false gospel and trying to trick you and lead you astray. And he thought that the alliteration didn't work well and wanted there to be three S's. So he came up with serpents. His name is Alex Gage, just to give him full credit for the idea. Suffering, sin, 
and serpents. Those three things will keep you from finishing the race. James deals with all of them, though James mainly deals with sin. And then if you keep reading through the general epistles, watch how it works. First Peter, remember that? We studied that together in 2019. What does it mainly focus on? It has some sin in it, but mainly it focuses on suffering. Suffering. And then keep going to Second Peter. Second Peter talks some about suffering, but it's switching more to serpents. Right? And then get into first, second, and third John. What are they written to, pr- to protect the church from, if not false teachers who are coming in and trying to deceive? So first, second, and third John deal with serpents as well, and some sin, especially first John talks a lot about that. And then Jude also deals with serpents or false teachers. So all, all of the general epistles are all dealing with those three S's, starting with James, which is building on Hebrews, so that God's people are, and this is, this is the title I would give to all of the general epistles. Sometimes it helps to have one, like a one-sentence title to remember what stuff is about. It helps me anyway. It helps me remember stuff, right? Because it's hard to remember things sometimes. Faithful to the end. That's what I would name all of the general epistles, and that's not my name. I'm stealing that shamelessly from someone's book about this. Faithful to the end. That's what the general epistles are for. You're feeling discouraged. You're feeling caught up in sin. You're afraid that you're being tricked by a false teacher, a serpent. Go to the general epistles. Every one of them is written to help you finish the race of faith well by keeping your eyes focused straight on Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and the power that you have because you're in him. That's what the general epistles are about. That's who John, First John, sorry, is hanging out with. Those are his buddies. Those are the people in his neighborhood. But you may have noticed that not only does 1 John like to go to the coffee shop, right, with First and Second Peter and Jude and James, and hang out kind of in his neighborhood, he also occasionally calls somebody and meets him for lunch halfway across town, right? The other book is coming from Minnetonka, he's coming from south of the river, they meet somewhere in Edina and they have lunch together every now and then. What other book does 1 John like to meet in the middle and talk to somewhat frequently, meet for lunch? But look at the very beginning of 1 John. It says in verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, we testify or witness that to you. What does that sound a lot like? Advent, right? The Gospel of John. So First John really likes the Gospel of John. They happen to have been written by the same guy. That's one of the reasons. So you'll see First John talking a lot, particularly with the Gospel of John, and drawing on themes and theologies from the Gospel of John. So as we're reading First John, it will not hurt you to have a finger right over here on more or less page 1,000 or so, whatever page it is in your Bible, and have a finger in the Gospel of John, as you read First John, because they talk a lot with each other. So that's who the people are in his neighborhood, the people he hangs out with in the corner coffee shop and the guy he meets for lunch. So now we've met, uh, we've talked about how to read New Testament epistles. We've talked about the, the context of the books around First John and how that influences what we understand First John to be doing, which is a book to help us finish the race, particularly dealing with sin and serpents. So we're going to ask First John one more question. We want to ask it, what kind of music does it like? What does it like to sing? What's its melody line? So you can title this part of your, on your bulletin outline if you would like to write the title for this chunk. It is, can you hear the book, can you hear the letter sing? Can you hear the letter, that, yeah, 
That's the melody. Can you hear the letter sing? From Les Miserables. So it's probably not Les Miserables. I'm not sure that First John particularly cares for that. But I thought Bon Jovi might play well with First John, right? Do you know, you give love a bad name. Do you know that one? That could work with parts of First John, I think, maybe. I tried to think of a couple other 80s pop hits to go with it, but I think we'll just stick with Bon Jovi and maybe not sing the whole first verse. So I don't know, is First John singing... What's the melody of the book? That's a question that focuses more on the book itself, right? Not on its genre, not on its neighbors. Now let's look at the what's the earworm you get every time you read it and walk away with it. Because every biblical book has a melodic line it sings. And if you can identify that at the beginning, and you do that by reading and reading and reading it more than once, and listening and saying, what am I humming by the time I'm done? What is it singing? If you can identify the melodic line before you start working your way through it, then you can hear the harmony too because every book has complex, like this is a symphony. This is just one part of a broader, beautiful symphony. It has lots of harmony and lots of parts going on. So if you can catch the melody, then you can start to see how all the harmonies relate to it. Right? All the sub-themes and all the other sub-points that go on in the book. It's really fun. So Genesis has a melodic line we could use as an example, and that would be the seed From beginning to end, it doesn't matter where you're at in the book of Genesis, it's always talking about the seed. The seed is coming. He's going to crush the serpent and redeem the people and restore the garden. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. All the way through the book of Genesis, it's singing about the coming seed, the coming son, the coming savior, wherever you're at. So here's the tune I think 1 John is humming. I think 1 John is humming a tune that goes like this. By this we know. By this, we know. It's a structuring device that repeats through the book, just like the Toledot structure that these are the generations of repeats through Genesis. By this, we know. So I want to unpack that just a little bit as the last part of the sermon. By this, we know, by the way, it's K-N-O-W, not by this, we know. By this we know. And in English, that's what we usually think of, right? What I know is what I have intellectually acquired or mentally understand. And it does mean that. The word know in Greek can and does mean that. But it can also mean a little bit more. Sometimes in English, we think of know as something that we assent to. Something that we actually agree with. We don't just understand it. We agree with it. Know what I mean? Ha, ha, right? Know what I mean? Or, you know that's right. Or any other phrase that kind of, it's like, yeah, you're agreeing with that. You don't just know it, you agree with it. But the word know in both Hebrew and Greek can be a lot more personal than that. And can also include personal experience and personal action. I know what joy is. Right? Not just intellectually, but because I experience it. I know what good coffee tastes like. Not just because I read a book on it, but because I like to drink it, right? And joy and good coffee. I said those together because it's the first thing that popped into my head, obviously. I I know it. I've personally experienced it. I've taken action. I've lived it. And when 1 John says, by this we know, that's what it's talking about. You understand it. You agree with it. But you're actually doing it. By this we know. That's the know. Let's tease out the we. It's intended to be speaking to the readers of the book. 
So remember, New Testament epistles, they've been written to new yet old community, the community of faith. The community of faith is new, but it's very old at the same time. It's called the church. It used to be called Israel. Now it's called the church. It's the same people, God's people. And as recipients of the New Testament, that includes us. So we get to read this mail. That's the we. And you know, there's an unspoken object, right? There's a missing object at the end of the phrase. By this we know... What? What is it we know? And the book answers that a lot of different ways. There's a lot of things First John is going to fill in the blank there at the end. By this we know God and love. Love for God and love for others. Whether or not we're abiding with God and whether or not he abides with us. There are lots of things that the book is going to say, by this we know And they all are going to directly relate to the main theme of the general epistles that we've already identified. By this, we know who the false teachers are. So we can identify their false teaching and not be tripped up by it. By this, we know whether we're actually Christians or not. Or whether we're just playing games with our sin and with our Savior. Or whether we've really been saved. By this, we know can mean a number of different things in the book of John. And then there's one word left that, well, we haven't done the preposition, but we won't. But there's also the this. Right? What is the this? By this we know. I'm not going to tell you that. Too bad. You have to study the book to figure out what the this is. By what we know, by this we know, keep reading. You want to understand, if you want to agree with, and personally experience what love is and who God is, and what it means to abide and remain and live with him on earth in exile right now, then you actually have to read and study the whole book. By this we know. And by the end of the book, you'll be able to answer that question too. What is the this? Well, stay tuned for future episodes. I will give you just one hint though. Just one, just one hint. So remember James and how it's using Hebrews to set up all the main ideas of the epistles. What does James say about what saving faith looks like? Remember James 2? What does saving faith look like? Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by by what I do, right? By what I do. Remember the last point of Genesis when we talked about our summary of it a couple of weeks ago. Don't fear the fall, because faith works. Don't fear the fall because faith works. Saving faith is seen in what it does. And faith that does not do any work is not saving faith. So it could be that by this we know relates a little bit to that thought from James and that we want to end with Augustine like we did with Genesis where Augustine says we are saved by faith alone and that's it. But not by faith that is alone. If that faith isn't doing anything, then that's not faith. First John will say it this way. By this, we know. So we get to start next week with the first four verses. Your commission from this text, and I'll say it again at the end of the service, your commission will be enjoy reading the book of First John one more time. Try to do it in one sitting. It's a short book, so you can. And then look for the thises. What are the thises? By this we know. 
So you get to read ahead, and this will be the only time I let you do it, so take advantage of it. You can read ahead, read it in one sitting, and look for the what are the thises in First John, and we're going to start the text next week in the first four verses. Let's pray. Father, I pray, I, I thank you. Thank you that you know that we have trouble running long races. And we have trouble with our attention span sometimes. And we get discouraged and tired and worn out from life in this world. Thank you that you've given us seven letters at the end of your Bible, all of which help us fix our eyes on Jesus and help us keep running the race to finish well. I pray that you would use this book to help us do that. I pray that you would encourage us as we read it, that we would learn more about who you are and simply enjoy your word as a gift to us, that we would learn more about who you are and see the passionate love that you have for your people with whom you come to dwell, and that we would see the seriousness of things like listening to the wrong people and the vileness of our own sin, and that these things would propel us back to fixing our eyes on Jesus. Help us to run well with this book in the next six months. We ask that you would do this work through your Holy Spirit because we cannot do it for ourselves. In Christ's name, amen. It's a good day to come to the feast. This is a table. This is a table that helps us run. Here's how. 